0: A historic B-17 is doing a sightseeing flight when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to end in disaster?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
2: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. So we're coming at you between Zoom calls. For our patrons. Also, we have to say thank you to new patrons.
0: I
1: know we have at least one.
0: Yeah. Thanks to... Alyssa. Alyssa. Yes. And then thanks to Kieran for coming back. Welcome back, yo. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for supporting us and being awesome. You will... I'm get sending it out your today. merch.
2: We are doing it today. We literally just had this conversation.
0: We have
1: so many things going on.
2: We're having issues with the P.O. box, so... Don't stock our return address. Thank you. (laughs) If you live in Australia, I am so sorry. You're not getting your merch at this time. So, along those lines... I've emailed some of you guys about this, too.
0: Yes, and if...
2: Or any other country that the USPS just refuses to ship to because of COVID. If you are
1: in that realm, then please let us know a good alternative. If there's something else that you would like for your benefits in turn, until... Things change and we can get you physical benefits.
0: I know some of you just said, eh, it's okay, we'll wait. I mean, we we feel bad because it's one of the main things that you get as being a patron.
1: We want to make sure that like you you definitely feel like you're getting your return.
2: We could do like a Netflix watch party or something. I don't know. Come, I don't up, know. With Come something. up with something
1: good. We'll, we'll think of something.
2: We could do a special down under Zoom meetings only. I don't know. We'll figure we'll figure it out,
0: but let us know if any of any of the things above you feel so inclined to. We could do a book club. I don't know. Wait. I don't have time to read. Good, but... Oh, <laughs> I was going to be like, that's a good idea. I know. That is a good idea, but I also don't have any time to read. Uh,
1: so me neither.
0: I don't... <laughs> Movie club? I don't know.
1: I'd be more inclined for that.
0: Well, yeah. We'll like watch Airplane or something. Workshop and it. Workshop it or talk about it after. I don't know. Also, if you would like ducks... There is now, or there should be, (laughs) a form on the homepage of our website where you can literally fill it out so we know you want ducks and we'll send you ducks. Free stuff, yo. They'll be signed. They're tiny.
2: I don't know when we made that joke about the ducks in Nick's family, but now it's a thing. Yep. So if you want signed rubber ducks.
1: They're tiny ducks. They come in an envelope. That's it. That's all you'll get. But They're they're free.
2: Their butt is signed
0: by us. So if you want some...
1: Depending on where you live, because, again, there's places we cannot
0: ship. Right. But if you want some and you're not in that prescribed list of places that we can't send anything to right now, let us know. If you
1: are in one of those places, you can still request it. It's just going to be on hold for a long time.
0: (laughs) We'll probably highlight your name, a special color, and be like, to be determined. (laughs) Okay. With all of that... We are postponing, or we did postpone, the December listener episodes because we got one story, and it was from, you guessed it, David. <laughs> so, That's okay. if you have your New Year's stories, go ahead and send those to us. Yes. And we will combine them together to make a full episode. We are also still currently, as we were recording this, still working on the listener episode for November. Yes. We're working on it. Yes. It'll be the cool. holiday season is coming. We're all very busy, yes. so
2: it'll be cool if it works.
1: It will be cool if it works. It was a bit of an experiment. This one was really kind of a weird thing to test. If we do like this, then we'll have a do- whole new and better way of doing things. But that's
0: it's to be lot. determined. It is a lot. So now, nah. okay. what are we covering today? <laughs> I feel like it's been ten years since we started the episode.
1: Today we are covering the 2019. B17 crash.
2: Thank you to our patrons, Kevin and Kate, for recommending this episode. Also, I think my
0: grandfather recommended this too. Oh. I think this was the crash he was talking to me about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I was like, do you know anything else about it? He was like, no. (laughs) I'm like,
2: okay. Kate sent us a long list of recommendations, and this and Lockerbie were both on it. And she sent it before Lockerbie aired.
1: (laughs) Just before Lockerbie was recorded.
2: And we were like, fun fact. You don't have to wait very long. Like, can you stop being psychic for two seconds? Thank you. Thank you.
1: So, this happened on October second of two thousand nineteen,
2: just before we started the podcast. Just
1: before we started the podcast,
2: uh, like a week before. I'm actually pretty sure we recorded episode one around this time. Yeah, probably.
1: We probably did. This is a Douglas-built Boeing B seventeen G. That was a weird thing about World War is They Manufacturers all work together to produce aircraft as quickly as possible. So Boeing designed the B 17, but Douglas helped them build it because they just needed, they just needed them. Yeah.
2: This is pertinent later. Who actually writes the manuals then? Good question. But that means he doesn't I like know that, the answer. I
1: like that question.
2: <laughs> I like that question. <laughs> that is a
1: solid question to ask. <laughs> dude,
0: dude, you know, he doesn't know the answer to that the question. That is some <laughs> <laughs> That's <Definitely>, a question.
1: <laughs> definitely seems like a good question.
2: Because in the report, they're like, the manufacturer's manual. I'm like, oh, great. So it's Boeing's. Now I'm like, I'm not so sure. Well, it's probably Well, Boeing, Boeing designed the aircraft, so that would be my guess, is it would be Boeing. So but... I'm going to preface my part by saying when I say Boeing, I don't actually know. It probably Could be Douglas.
1: It's probably Boeing's. They had the majority to do with the B-17.
2: The manual now is probably published by Boeing since uh, they ate Douglas. Yes. Nom nom.
1: Yes, nom nom. This is a B-17G, Flying Fortress, tail number November 93012, and a complicated set of serial numbers. We'll talk about this in a moment. But B for bomber, because this is a World War II bomber.
2: It dropped bombs.
1: Yes, it was, this is a quad prop, a uh, radials, so the pistons are in a circle.
2: I will talk more about that later. We'll get
1: far more into that later. But anyways, this is a quad prop, so there's four big engines. And this one had two separate serial numbers we'll talk about here briefly.
2: We did see a B-17 in Orange County. Yes.
1: Yes, we did.
2: There's one at the museum at the Orange County Airport. Highly recommend. It's a great uh, aviation museum. Highly recommend. Yes. Yes. And
0: it's small. But
2: but it's still great. It's still great. Yes.
0: They have... Two DC threes? Yes. Yes. One of them is
1: a C forty seven, which is a the military. Military version.
0: And then one is a domestic. Yeah. A which DC3. is pretty cool. Yeah. So.
1: Anyways, for the serial numbers. So be it that this airplane has a history, we'll get a little bit into the history of this airplane, but this one originally was built as 44-83575 that was the serial number okay it was built toward the very end of the war it was then primarily used as a air and sea rescue airplane okay it then went into storage for a while it was then pulled out by the US military and then it was used as a live weapons test aircraft what that actually means this aircraft was subjected to 3 nuclear tests Damn. They flew it around...
0: When they were testing the nukes?
1: Nuclear weapons to see how it would react. That's not a job I would ever want.
0: No, No, thank you. That is completely endangering somebody's life.
1: (laughs) Yes. So this was a live weapons test aircraft.
0: I hate that. Yeah. That's horrifying. That's fun. Well, it didn't fall apart.
1: No. So (laughs) It was then stored again and then pulled out and restored one more time as a water bomber. So okay. it helped put out wildfires, such, oh, okay, things like that.
2: In Colorado?
1: Don't know, actually. I or don't know California exactly. Or
2: California
0: or the West Coast, uh, I, mean, I guess.
1: Most likely just the Western United States. The aircraft was eventually purchased by the Collings Foundation in the 80s and was turned into a Living History Flight Experience aircraft, which is a very specific, actual, legal, defi- legally defined Regulation-driven form of aircraft. Well, it in the United has to States. be
0: because if you're the, my guess would be is most of those are older airplanes. So
1: they are usually wartime aircraft that have been preserved in flying condition for flying experiences. So, in other words, they go on tour and you can pay to ride on them. And so they, they do. They
0: probably have special regulations and stuff so that they can fly, right? They
1: do, and we'll talk about that. So this one, yeah, it was purchased in the 80s and then went on to do that with the Collings Foundation all the way until the time of this accident, which, by the way, this aircraft also had two previous accidents. On August 23rd of 1987, it overran a runway while landing at Beaver County Airport in Pittsburgh. And then on July 9th of 1995, it was damaged on landing at Carl Steffen Memorial Airport in Norfolk, Nebraska, Do as I... a result of a landing gear malfunction. Oh, landing gear malfunction. But both times, the airplane was restored and continued flying, and both those incidents were the 80s and 90s, and now we're all the way forward to 2019.
0: I keep forgetting that this happened a few years ago.
1: Yeah, just a couple years ago. So, the airplane's had many lives. It's a long history, because this is a very old airplane. Now we're talking about the airplane being at Bradley International Airport in Hartford, connecticut which is in the town of windsor locks connecticut but it is the major airport for hartford and it was going to be there for a few days of sightseeing flights i don't have any names i'm sure the names were somewhere but i could not find them of the crew
2: which really they just get called to pilot and co-pilot yeah they do because the they're not like really it's captain not an airline yeah no. it's but that's saying captain and first officer gives you a clue of two Who's pilot in command, who's yes. sitting in which seat. Yes. Yeah. I will be referring to them as pilot and co-pilot.
1: Yes. The captain was 75 years old. Ooh. Yep. He had 14,500 hours total, of which 7,300 hours were on the B-17. I
0: mean, that's a Dang. lot. That's
1: a lot of time for that type of airplane. Yeah. yeah. For Kind of tells you how long he'd probably been flying them for this foundation. The first officer was 71 years old, so also older. He had 22,000 hours
2: Dang.
1: total, of which only 23 were on the B-17. Oh,
0: well, <laughs> okay. that would hence, be why he's a quote-unquote first officer.
2: Yeah, hence
1: he was not the uh, captain.
2: Or pilot-in-command. Pilot-in-command,
1: okay. correct. Then there was a flight engineer slash loadmaster.
2: Slash tour guide. Slash
1: tour guide. Didn't actually really perform any flight engineer yeah, functions. Yeah, I was going to say,
2: well,
0: to be fair, again, old airplanes... I don't know if wartime wartime aircraft did have flight engineers, right? Some
1: did, but most didn't. I mean, it wasn't entirely necessary. They designed the airplanes really to just be non-complicated airplanes. They would just literally fire up and go. That was kind of the point.
2: His entire role through this entire flight slash tour is very fluid. Because at times, like, yeah, he did kind of act as loadmaster. Other times, he was a tour guide. Other times, he was an acting flight attendant.
1: We'll talk about it here. That's so
2: complicated. <clears throat> yeah, he
1: was 34 years old, so half of everybody else's age, and he had a student pilot certificate. There were no hours logged for him whatsoever because he wasn't doing any kind of flight role for this in particular. But he did have a mechanic certificate with an airframe and power plant,
2: also known as A and P.
1: Yes, A M P. So he was an A M P, as was the captain. Hmm. Both were active AMPs. Ps.
2: That will be relevant <clears throat> later.
1: Yep. The aircraft was due to spend uh, another day of flying some passengers around on short sightseeing flights there in Hartford, Connecticut. That morning, a lineman arrived at the plane. A lineman is kind of a general term for uh, people who work for FBOs or flight based operation facilities. So these are like jet centers. And any time you go into a small airport, there's usually like a little tiny facility where they, they offer fuel and deicing services things like that. And so alignment is just somebody who works helps there. with these facilities works that basically. So there's alignment arrived at the airplane and assisted the loadmaster in fueling the large old warbird. They added 160 gallons of 100 low lead fuel, which is this is a piston airplane, so this is uh, outside the realm of what we normally talked about talk about, but this is similar to the, what you would put in your car except it still has lead. All the fuel that we use on cars is unleaded, so this is 100 low lead, this is still legal in aviation, and it's the primary used fuel to this day on piston aircraft. However, this actually changed recently. There is a new regulation where there are unleaded fuels allowed in aviation, in piston aviation, but that's kind of beside the point. Once this was complete, 10 passengers were loaded for the first flight of the day. The aircraft was prepared, and the captain began starting the engines. The number one and number two engines on the left wing started without issue. However, the number three and number four engines did not start when the captain tried to on his initial attempts. Those are the right engines. There had been rain the day before, and the moisture had gotten into the magnetos. Magnetos.
2: I will explain so much more about magnetos later.
1: We'll talk more about these later, but they're part of piston engines on aircraft. The crew were familiar with this because this was a regular problem with the airplane. The loadmaster who held an AMP cert knew how to correct this issue. The captain shut down the engines and the loadmaster went out to the right side engines where he used compressed nitrogen to blow out any moisture from the magnetos. He then returned to the airplane cabin as the captain began starting the engines again. All four engines started normally this time. Before they were to take off, they performed a run-up. This is normal with any piston airplane. They just go to a remote area of the airport, and they ran the engines up to 1,700 RPM, and then they perform a series of checks on the airplane, including a magneto check, which is standard for literally pretty much every piston airplane flying today. Everything appeared to be normal, and so they continued with their planned flight. They were subsequently cleared for takeoff. They took off from runway 6 at 9.47 a.m., The landing gear was retracted upon liftoff and confirmation of climb. At 9.48 a.m. and 16 seconds, the tower handed off control of the flight to the approach controller for the area. The loadmaster, who had been in the cockpit for takeoff, moved back to the cabin shortly after takeoff to tell the passengers that they could get up from their seats and tour the airplane. So this is relatively normal. I mean, this seems kind of extreme because this is literally within two minutes of takeoff. Yeah. But we're talking about airplanes that fly low to the ground for sightseeing purposes and they cruise low and slow. It's yeah. kind of the point. So once they're airborne, pretty much fair game. They can get up, start kind of touring around, see the inside of the airplane and the different perspectives from the gunners positions and the cockpit positions, all those things. Like there's just it's kind of a cool experience if you ever do one of these.
0: Is there a emergency plan in place that if something were to happen they can get back to their seats? We'll talk
1: about that too. Great. While this is happening, something had the flight crew worried. At 9.49 a.m., just two minutes after takeoff, and 19 seconds, one of the flight crew radioed the air traffic controller, saying, quote, we would like to return to the field, end quote. At that time, the airplane was at just 600 feet above the ground.
0: Not very f-
1: high off no. the ground. On the right crosswind leg of the pattern for runway 6. So, talk about this a little bit. So, patterns at an airport... You have the upwind or the runway leg. The crosswind leg.
2: Which is perpendicular
1: to the runway. Correct. So perpendicular to the runway. So as they're flying away, they make a turn that's perpendicular to and fly that 90 degree. And then you have the downwind leg. This will all be pertinent.
2: Which is parallel to the runway.
1: Parallel to the runway, but in the opposite direction that you would took off. And then you have the base leg, which is perpendicular to, but heading toward the the 90 degrees for final which is the last leg, straight into the runway. So you make a box, and the three legs are runway or upwind leg, crosswind, downwind, and then base and final. So they are on the crosswind leg the first after the first turn. They had been switched from the tower controller to the approach controller, so they were only communicating with the approach controller at the time. The approach controller asked if they needed any assistance, and the pilots responded negative. The air traffic controller then asked why they would be returning, and the pilots responded, quote, rough mag, End quote, on the number four engine. At that time, the loadmaster returned to the cockpit. It was at that time that he realized they were no longer climbing. The captain then asked the first officer to extend the landing gear, and he did so. The loadmaster left the cockpit and returned to the cabin, where he informed the passengers to return to their seats and fasten their seat belts, and they did so. He then returned to the cockpit, at which time the captain told him that the number four engine was losing power. The captain then shut down the number four engine without any further discussion. At 9.49 a.m. and 42 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to fly the right downwind leg for runway six and asked whether they would need an immediate landing. The flight crew responded that they wanted the airplane to be on the ground as soon as possible, quote unquote. So when we say that they're doing a right downwind, that means that they're making all right turns in the box. So you can do a left pattern or a right pattern meaning you either make all right turns or all left turns. So in this case, they're making all right turns. The air traffic controller then canceled another airplane's approach to runway 6 and then told the flight, the B-17, to, quote, proceed however necessary, end quote, to runway 6. 9.50 a.m. and 50 seconds, the approach controller handed the flight off to the tower controller. The captain acknowledged this instruction and they switched the frequency. Frequency, yeah. They then contacted the tower the tower air traffic controller reported the wind as calm and cleared the flight to land on runway six. At 9.51 a.m., the airspeed of the airplane dropped below 100 miles per hour. This is a piston airplane, so they can fly pretty slow. 9.51 a.m. in eight seconds, the flight crew acknowledged the landing clearance. At that time, they were at 400 feet above the ground on a midfield right downwind leg for runway six. So this is another kind of Not super complicated thing, but they had flown pretty far on their crosswind instead of turning for the downwind leg. So in doing so, they then had to fly back toward the airport to enter the downwind leg much closer to the runway. And in doing that, you do what's called a midfield. So you enter at the halfway point of the runway, basically, on the downwind leg. And they did so at a 45 degree angle from the crosswind.
2: Is there a map of their flight path? There
1: is a great map of their flight path on the the report. In the report? Yes. So they they do this 45 degree angle till they're parallel to the midpoint of the runway and then they turn and fly parallel to the rest of it before making two final right turns in for the runway. At 9.51 a.m. and 28 seconds, the air traffic controller requested their progress toward runway 6. Six seconds later, the flight crew responded, quote, we'll get there. Midfield downwind now, end quote. So that means they were turning for the downwind leg. This was the last communication that the flight crew would have with the air traffic controller. The airplane then descended through 300 feet above the ground as it began making the right turn onto the base leg, or perpendicular to the final leg. The airplane then made a right turn for final at 150 feet above the ground, just 0.4 nautical miles from the runway threshold. Moments later, the airplane struck the runway 6 approach lights In a right-wing-down attitude just 1,000 feet from the threshold, they struck with the right main landing gear and the right wing. 500 feet later, the airplane struck the ground, and the engine suddenly accelerated as it veered to the right away from the runway. They crossed a taxiway and impacted vehicles before impacting a de-icing fluid tank where the airplane came to rest upright 940 feet to the right of the runway centerline oriented to the east. A large fire then broke out. A worker that was at the de-icing fluid station was injured with severe burns after he ran to help rescue the, the survivors. One of the passengers was a Connecticut Air National Guardsman and they had managed to open an escape hatch despite having a broken arm and a broken collarbone and began helping people out of the airplane. Ouch. Yes. Another person at a nearby construction site witnessed the crash, climbed the fence, and ran to assist the survivors. The fire grew quickly and spread to most of the aircraft, leaving behind only the tail section and the left wing.
0: Which, by the way, there's a piece of wreckage that Christy just showed me, and yes. literally the only thing left is the tail. Yep. Yes.
1: Of the 13 people on board, seven, including both flight crew and five passengers, perished in the accident. Six people, including the loadmaster and five passengers, survived the crash, and the one employee of the at the de-icing fluid facility, the one person, was injured on the ground. So I didn't talk about this either, but through all of those things, when it was taken in by the Collings Foundation for these tour flights, it had been repainted in a different color from a different squadron back during World War Two of a different B-17 that had been retired, mothballed, and eventually scrapped. And its uh, serial number was 42 dash So this airplane was known formally as 909.
2: And that's also what its Wikipedia page is, is just 909, right. spelled out in letters.
1: Yes.
0: I have a question about, and we might get into this, but they were losing altitude pretty fast
1: they were losing altitude relatively quickly yes
0: so my question is cuz i know we haven't really gone over these engines yet and i know we're mm-hmm. going to go over them yes but only one engine was out correct so yeah. well we'll talk about it well as far as they knew they shut down correct. one engine right so my correct. question is 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 this can this airplane fly with the other 3 engines yes yes or sh- it should be able to right yes, yes. it definitely you can you are correct Which means something else went wrong. It could fly with two. Okay. Well, two on one wing?
1: We'll talk about this.
0: Okay. (laughs) See?
2: Stop jumping the gun. You do this every episode, Dad. I just have questions, okay?
1: So I will say, before we jump onto your portion, that why I brought up the 909 thing is because after this accident happened, that was, through all of the social media everywhere, that was kind of the big thing. The tribute that everybody was doing was... Posting their pictures they had of nine oh nine, everybody. Everybody was saying yeah, R.I.P. nine oh nine and all those things because it was it was a famous touring B seventeen. It went all over the country.
2: I guess I should also say that this craft was recommended by my former coworker Michelle.
1: Yep, who she used lives to...
2: next to Bradley.
1: Yep, she lives next to Bradley. So, so that was crazy. She yeah, knew all about it.
2: This investigation was performed by the NTSB, who sent a go team led by then board member, now chairwoman of the NTSB, Jennifer Homendy.
1: Yeah, crazy. Which is
2: pretty crazy. And since this wasn't a normal report, but rather one of their abbreviated ones, I could not find a section dedicated to the black boxes, so I assume there weren't any.
1: From everything I could tell, there weren't, and from what I read- It's an
2: old aircraft, so-
1: Yes, and from what I read, they had some individual recorders for some of the instruments, but they all burned, so-
2: So we're starting from square one. Got diddly squat. Got nothing. Given that this was the first flight of the day and had been recently fueled to start the day, the fuel came under suspicion first. Was the fuel contaminated? Maybe with water. Short answer? No. That would have been a really easy way to get out of this episode quick, and that did not happen. (laughs) Dang it. it. I'm just kidding. I know. It was then revealed that in flight, the crew reported needing to return to the airport for a rough mag, short for the magneto, that initiates the spark in each engine. The approach controller asked if they needed any assistance, to which the pilot responded, negative. Rather than telling the story multiple times, I'm now going to sprinkle in some of the information from the interview with the loadmaster-slash-flight-and-engineer-slash-acting-flight-tour-guide, etc., etc., etc. He returned to the cockpit and realized that the plane was no longer climbing, as did the pilot who instructed the co-pilot to extend the landing gear. The loadmaster told the passengers to return to their seats, buckle up, and then the pilot said that the number four engine was losing power, so he shut it down and feathered the propeller without saying so verbally or discussing it in any way with his co-pilot. Which,
1: obviously, I have a small problem with.
2: Yeah, I have a few problems with that. I was going to say, when he shut down the engine and just
0: didn't say anything, I'm like, um, Not great.
1: Yeah, that's not a that's good not thing. It's not
0: crew resource management. No, which... Like,
1: I get all. they are in a one thirty five or one twenty one operator, but still,
0: you should still be able to talk to your co pilot. Okay, he is a pilot.
2: You yes. should make decisions together. Even when we're flying with Brendan, he says this shit out loud. Yes.
1: Yes. Any good pilot well, and should. And I'm not saying not, we're not,
2: not
0: even flying the aircraft. And
1: I'm not saying that they're not good pilots per se, but they were put into a stressful situation and they weren't. For some reason, they weren't calling on their training and time, and it just, just Which somehow is crazy. was yeah. gone. Because
0: the the ca- the quote unquote captain, the pilot in command, had fourteen thousand hours, right? And the, others, the other, had twenty two thousand hours. I'm assuming some of those were within an airline. airline, right? Yeah, like most at,
1: likely, both of them flew for an airline at some at point.
0: some point. Because there's at least seven thousand on the the pilot in command side that aren't accounted for by the B seventeen, and there's a lot of hours for the first officer or the pilot. That aren't accounted for. Yeah, yeah that, that aren't, that accounted, aren't for. accounted for. So, right.
2: a video surfaced of the landing, which showed that the landing gear had already been extended at 2.7 nautical miles from the threshold, but they were too low and struck the approach lights in a right wing down attitude, which makes sense based on the loadmaster's story of shutting down a right engine. So they had less power on that side. They started so less lift. Yep, they started yep. dipping on that side. So the story's all good and well, but we know how reliable victim statements can be, especially after something as traumatic as, say, a plane crash. So let's look at the physical evidence. Investigators dove into the engines on the right wing, engines three and four, whose propeller blades were in a low pitch and a feathered position, respectively. These are the type of engines where speed of the propeller isn't changed, but rather the pitch of the propeller blades are changed to take more of a chop out of the air or less, depending on how much power they want. By having a feathered propeller, it's doing nothing. Just rotating. Spinning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a low-pitch propeller like Engine 3 would produce maximum RPM, therefore maximum torque, therefore maximum power. That explanation may not use the exact technical terms, and someone might try to come for me. But point is, Engine 3 was basically in a climb setting since Engine 4 was out of commission. Kind of makes sense.
0: Which, yeah, if you have asymmetric lift, you need more power on that side to keep it equal
2: with the other side. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. And now I have to go into something I've never discussed in our two years on the podcast. And that's how radial engines work. I
0: think we have at one point. But not in
2: depth. Not Not in depth, but we've talked about it before. Well, now we do. Most of this will be discussed as from the perspective of a pilot looking at a front-mounted engine. So you're looking at it from the rear. The engine from this perspective is arranged as a circle with the cylinders poking out like spokes on the radius of the circle. Yep. Radial. Radial.
1: Hence the (laughs) radial.
2: From this perspective, they are numbered, starting with one at the top and then clockwise. Almost all radial engines have an odd number of cylinders. Fun fact. My example here that I'm going to give has five, but the B-17 engines had nine cylinders. I'm doing my best to explain, but we will also have at least one link, if not more, to the website Bold Method, who explains so many fundamentals of flying and are based out of Centennial Airport, and Nick knows them personally. Yes,
1: I used to know these guys actually, not super well, but I mean, they were some of my clients and I actually talked with them regularly, and they're very good people who are very good at teaching.
2: The cylinders have rods in them, which connect to the crankshaft in the middle, And the end of the rod basically plugs the inside end of the cylinders, but moves in and out, changing the volume inside the cylinder. The outer part of the cylinder has an intake valve for letting in the fuel and air mixture, the spark plug, and the exhaust valve for letting the exhaust out. Each cylinder has four phases, intake, compression, power, and exhaust. Through these four phases, the rod makes an in and out motion twice, and the spark plug fires once. During the intake phase, the cylinder fills with the air and fuel mixture as the rod goes out of the cylinder, making space for the mixture. The rod then comes back in, compressing the mixture. The spark plug then fires, combusting or igniting the air and fuel mixture in the power phase, pushing out the rod. Lastly, the rod comes back in and expels the exhaust through the exhaust valve. All of these are happening simultaneously in each cylinder, but at different phases at the same time. I was going to say, it looks like I'm looking at the example. There's a GIF on the Bold Method website. I highly recommend you look at it. it it's actually, it helps a lot,
0: but it's one of those where each cylinder fires, like the exhaust fires, the, 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 the what's the thing? The spark plug. Thank you. The spark plug is firing at different
2: parts. Yeah. And I'll in get into, cylinder. I'm going to get into that right now. <clears throat> So the third phase of the cycle, the combustion, is easily marked in the GIF since that's when the spark happens and the spark plugs are timed so that they fire in a certain order across the engine. For a five cylinder, it's in the order one, three, five, two, four. Kind of like drawing a star, if that makes yes. sense. Yep. For the nine cylinder, it would fire in the order one, three, five, seven, nine, two, four, six, eight. A little more complicated. Yes.
1: Fires the odds and then the evens. Yep.
2: So, how exactly are those spark plugs powered, you might ask? That's where the magneto comes in.
1: This is where a magneto is very important.
2: Yes. The spark plugs, they all have leads that go to the magneto, which uses a magnet to generate electricity in each spark plug in the correct order as the magneto spins around the leads. In many engines, including the ones on the b 17 There are actually two sets of spark plugs in each cylinder that alternate cycles, thereby reducing wear and tear and how often the spark plugs have to be serviced. This also means that there are two magnetos, a left and a right. So, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry, I'm looking at the thing. Is the thing in the middle of the magneto? No. No. So there. That's where the crankshaft is. So you'll see there's spark plugs at the end of each cylinder. Yeah. They all have cords that lead to a separate magneto. Oh, the right. okay. the magneto's it's not. It's a separate thing. It's a separate a thing. Or, okay, got yes. it, got it, got it's it. It's not
1: pictured there. No.
2: Okay. That's just so you can see how the cycle how it works. works. Got it, got it, got it. Thank I you. I don't think that website actually shows a magneto at all.
1: No, because it only talks about how radials work. Not, yes. Not uh, magnetos. So
2: there's wires coming out of each spark plug that go to the magneto, which creates a voltage that will then set off the spark plug in the correct order, if that makes sense.
1: In some regards, it would be nice if cars had magnetos, too, for a single purpose. What do you mean? When the battery's dead, you can still get somewhere.
2: Yeah, that would make sense. Or the
1: alternator doesn't work. Which is
2: one thing that's really nice about these engines is that if you have something wrong with your electrical system, the magneto is independent, so you can still have running engines.
1: That's the beautiful thing about the magnetos, but one of the only things...
2: So let's take a look at Engine 4 on the accident aircraft, the one that allegedly had a rough magneto. Investigators found that the left magneto, remember there's two, left and right, the left magneto's P-lead, which actually acts to basically turn off the magneto on command, was partially pulled out, and a single strand of safety wire was around the retaining net. Investigators tested the components of the engine and found that the left magneto produced a strong spark for all nine cylinders, but the grounding tab contacted the housing and made the magneto short and therefore inoperative. Now for the right magneto. We thought we was only one bad magneto. Oh, jeez. The right magneto didn't spark one of the spark plugs at all and only weakly and intermittently sparked the other eight. And this was found to be because of wear on the compensator cam, which is a cam that balances out the engine to compensate for when the cylinder rods aren't in the exact spot in the cycle that you want. It basically ensures that each cylinder is firing at the exact time needed, despite any minute shortcomings in the engine, and each compensator cam is custom to each engine. When that wore out, the spark plugs weren't going off at the best time in the cycle. Kind of not quite misfiring, but not in the most ideal time thank Not you the most
1: efficient use
2: thank you to nick stad al for providing that information because i couldn't figure it out
1: <laughs> so basically it's the timing of the firing of, the, of, the, of the, the firing
2: of the spark plugs yes on the right magneto and the left magneto probably just shortened, wasn't working at it wasn't all. wasn't working at all so this engine's crap yeah uh maintenance was so, that a oh, thing i'll we'll get, get I'll, there <laughs> give me a minute <laughs> several minutes Quote, the shorted out left Magneto would have caused rough engine operation and a partial loss of engine power that would have been exacerbated by the weak right Magneto, which is likely what prompted the pilot to shut down the number four engine and return to the airport, end quote. So, I don't know if you know this answer, but do you know how long that this engine was operating like this? Sort of, yes.
1: I can tell you how often they were supposed to look
2: at it. I can tell you that too, and I will get into it. Okay. okay. However, <laughs> as if this wasn't enough. Let's look at engine number three. Oh, there's something wrong with engine three, too. Okay.
0: <laughs> so there's a there's a, there's a pattern here. All uh-huh. right.
2: Engine three showed evidence of engine knocking on four of the nine cylinders, which would come from incomplete combustion. Further investigation found that all of the spark plugs in engine three were worn and had gaps between the electrodes beyond the manufacturer's specifications.
1: Meaning that the spark wouldn't necessarily always fire.
2: Yep. Miranda's making a face. So, wait a minute. So this led to engine knocking and a partial loss of engine power, and this would have been exacerbated when the pilot increased power to the number three engine.
0: Yeah, so the this plane, old plane, that uh-huh. should be taken care of properly, which I'm sure was not, uh, now has an engine that had to be shut off because it's not working properly. Then the other engine on the same wing is also not working properly, which is why they dipped so much. Uh-huh. When they were coming in,
2: because the third engine also couldn't provide the right amount of thrust. Correct. Got it. So, is there any way that the crew could have known that the Magneto was crap before the flight? During the pre-flight run-up, the pilot checked the Magnetos at 1,700 RPM, as Nick mentioned, which is higher than what the Collings Foundation checklist called for, which was 1,600 RPM. This is actually a good thing, as it's more accurate to check Magnetos at a higher RPM, and the pilot didn't detect anything abnormal. However, there's
1: the big however,
2: Boeing actually calls for a magneto check between 1900 and 2000 RPM, and they may have been able to detect the malfunction at the higher engine speed. Specifically, they may have been able to detect engine knocking.
0: Yeah, but that was like really a training problem,
2: right? No, it was a checklist. Well, the operator's checklist called for 1600 Right. RPM instead of the required 1900 to 2000 right so that's
0: not their fault they're just no. following what the checklist and really they went over what the checklist said correct so it that i would not put on the pilots. no that's the operator's problem correct
2: so who was in charge of maintaining the airplane funny story
0: <laughs> funny story
2: the pilot was the director of maintenance oh for f- sake <laughs> and was responsible for performing the airplane's maintenance Remember how he said he was an A&P? Yeah, he's in charge. God damn it. <laughs> Investigators determined definitively that this maintenance was not occurring properly. No, really. For example, these engines had to be inspected every 25 flight hours per their maintenance schedule. Oh my yep. God. <laughs> They're
0: which historic. You s- which is so hot.
2: Believe me, because we
0: talked about historic airplanes before, I get it. Like, more likely to break down and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's just very short.
2: Yes. And part of that 25-hour maintenance was cleaning, inspecting, testing, and, if necessary, replacing the spark plugs. The spark plugs on engine 3 should have been replaced when the gap between the electrodes exceeded the manufacturer's specifications. The 25-hour inspection also includes checking the point gap for each magneto. The last check on engine 4 happened nine days before the accident but the point gap was less than the minimum gap per manufacturer specs, meaning that the Magneto check either was done improperly or wasn't done at all.
1: We don't know which one.
2: Either way, it's not good.
1: Nope.
2: Miranda's not as mad as I thought she would be. Well, I, uh,
1: She's pretty mad, but she's keeping it in her face. Yeah. <laughs> like, her face is saying, I'm really mad about this.
2: Yeah. I,
0: I hate when pilots are in charge of maintenance. Not saying pilots can't be mechanics. Not saying mechanics can't be pilots. I hate when... It's I on the same aircraft. You're on the aircraft and you are in charge of the maintenance like it's your personal aircraft. It's so, not. Here's it's actual- not
1: all a bad thing, though, because it is beneficial to know the airplane inside and out and put your trust in it.
2: Yes. But if you're not doing it properly, you're putting right. yourself in danger. Right. So... This is actually a phenomenon that happens in accounting, which is my current job. It's a separation of responsibility. Yep. And apparently this just didn't happen here, which kind of bothers me. You should not be in charge of checking and flying the same aircraft unless it is a small
0: aircraft small aircraft is different and even then like nick's dad you he probably performs his own maintenance on his own aircraft right because he can but when you're talking about a big plane like a b-17 that's carrying Mm -hmm. passengers yes like carrying people and other people i would think you need for money yes like have you are either the pilot or right. you're the mechanic. Can those be at different times? Sure, but it just makes me uncomfortable because it's it goes to it goes one of two ways. You take really really super good care of the aircraft, and everything's fine. Or you bypass some of the stuff,
1: thinking you know the airplane inside right, you
0: know. and then it becomes a dangerous situation.
2: Separation of responsibility. Exactly. So I'm going to kind of deviate from maintenance for a little bit, since I didn't know where else to put this part, but I'll come back to it in a sec. Is there anything the flight crew could have done better to avoid crashing into the ground? Well, CRM's a thing. During the return to the airport, they were flying at 100 miles per hour and below, rather than the preferred 120 miles per hour that would minimize altitude loss. And this is probably because the crew couldn't main altitude at the lower airspeed because they were really only on the power on the left wing engines. Yeah, uh, uh, when you only have two engines. Now, that wasn't necessarily their fault. No. It's not great. I couldn't find anything about this other than a brief mention of it. They did not extend their flaps. I feel like that would be a key thing to slow yes.
0: down, though.
2: Well, incl- Un- increase
0: lift at, yep. at slower speeds. Yes. Th- th- it allows th- th- you to th- fly th- at slower speeds. Thank you. Yes,
1: increased lift at slower speeds. Because With it
0: that, increases wing yes, the uh, thing about area. The, there you go. <laughs> area the
1: yes, the thing about the B-17 is they worked a little differently. So it's not that they didn't do that, but they weren't entirely necessary to even land or take off this airplane. And they aren't in most airplanes. Which is
2: probably why I didn't read a whole lot about it.
1: Yes, it wasn't necessary... And it didn't make that much of a difference in this case either.
2: So kind of glancing over that a little bit, what was more important was what was in their control. And that was the landing gear. Oh, yeah. They could have waited to put the landing gear down. That caused drag. You are correct. Exactly. Investigators determined that if they had waited to lower the landing gear, in addition, also lowered the nose to increase airspeed, the airplane would have made it to the runway. Also, they wouldn't
0: have hit the lights. Yep. Correct. Correct. Because even if they were low,
2: the thing that hit the lights was the landing gear. Mm -hmm. So who was in charge of ensuring that maintenance was done properly? This is kind of a complicated question. So obviously the FAA was the Aviation Regulation Authority, but the Collings Foundation was operating with an LHFE exemption, which stands for... Living
1: History Flight Experience.
2: And this exempted them from specific regulations. But the FAA stated that the foundation, quote, must maintain and apply on a continuous basis its safety and risk management program that meets or exceeds the criteria specified for the FAA LHFE policy, End quote.
1: To clarify things a little bit, the LHFE falls under Part 91, which is the same thing that most flight schools fi- fall under.
2: Yeah, that's what Brendan flies.
1: Yeah, Part 91. So there's a couple of regulations, different regulation categories they can fall under. But Part 91 does allow you to do things for money, but it's primarily VFR. And it's not, while it can be worked for hire, it is not any form of generally like actual transportation point to point.
2: Right, right, right. But because they had an LHFE eg- exemption, they were allowed to deviate from certain regulations. But they had to have plans to mitigate risks from when they deviated. Right. The foundation implemented a safety management system, or SMS, two and a half years before the accident, which was approved by the FAA, but it was later found that the SMS safety officer, who was responsible for managing the SMS, was a part-time volunteer pilot and only interacted with the foundation's management and staff on a sporadic basis. This is the person in charge of maintenance? No, this is the person in charge of safety management and risk mitigation.
1: He's not around all the time.
2: I feel like that's and he's not, not paid, paid to do it either.
1: That's kind of ruins the point of safety if you ask me to not be around uh-huh. for most of its operation uh-huh. and maintenance.
2: The SMS clearly did not find or mitigate the risks of the pilot's inadequate maintenance of the airplane. The SMS the SMS also didn't detect the deviations in the Collings engine run up checklist as opposed to the B seventeen engine ground test checklist. This is where Miranda gets mad. The SMS also didn't detect that the flight crew didn't wear their shoulder harnesses during their flights as reported by the loadmaster. What? Yep. Or that the loadmaster's safety briefings to passengers was insufficient since multiple survivors reported not getting information about the seatbelts, exits, or emergency equipment. And the loadmaster did not sit down during takeoff and landing, all of which were against federal regulations. Yeah. Correct.
0: Hello? Yeah. Whenever you have people on board, you they need to know... How to work the seatbelts, where the emergency exits are, and when the time is if you have to leave, you'll leave. And how to open the exit doors.
2: Right. The loadmaster somewhere else in the report, Nick showed it to me, said that he didn't explain the seatbelts because he felt they were self-explanatory. You would be surprised. (laughs) Exactly. There is
0: a reason they still explain to you how your seatbelt works on every single flight you go on.
1: Yes, You correct. never
0: know when that person, that's their first flight. Yep. You never know.
1: Right. So that's one part of that. And then, yeah, I did glance over some other stuff in there just because I wanted to leave it somewhat of a mystery. I didn't want you to get too worked up about things when I was telling the story. <laughs> But yes, he was standing, the loadmaster was standing for Which, takeoff and there's landing. a
0: reason why you're supposed to be sitting down in a seat with a seatbelt on. I'm actually surprised that yes. he survived. Yeah, yes. for real. Like, what? And then they're not wearing shoulder harnesses uh-huh. either. Which is probably why they died. Yeah, I hate to say that, but... They're also over 70. And they hit nose f- first. Yes, and so. it burned nose first. So that probably didn't help. But the whole point of them being there is for you to wear them.
2: Uh Uh-huh. I know. So we're going to take a quick break. break.
1: And then the second half is going to be quite short. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armor All, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armorall, Less work, more clean. Terms apply. And we're back. So, do you want to just oh, read yeah, this? <laughs> so
2: there's, there's no findings.
1: No findings.
2: The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable ca- cause, causes, parentheses, of this accident to be the pilot's failure to properly manage the airplane's configuration and airspeed after he shut down the number four engine following its partial loss of power during the initial climb. Contributing to the accident was the pilot slash maintenance directors. <laughs> I hate that sentence. Inadequate maintenance while the airplane was on tour, which resulted in the partial loss of power to the numbers three and four engines. The Collings Foundation's ineffective safety management system, which failed to identify and mitigate safety risks, and the FAA's inadequate oversight of the Collings Foundation's SMS. Ta-da. Ta-da. I'm actually kind of surprised that the maintenance was contributory and not the main cause. Well cause the really main- that was the main cause. Nah. In my opinion it was, because this wouldn't have happened if that if wasn't. The a engines factor. didn't malfunction.
1: But They also could have landed the airplane regardless of the problem.
2: See, I feel like it should be switched. I feel like the configuration was contributory. Because it still would have been an incident.
1: To me, the accident... I I kind of agree with the NTSB here. The accident actually happened because they configured the aircraft wrong and flew the wrong speeds. The maintenance problem didn't have anything to do with the airplane crashing into a de-icing tank. It didn't cause them to crash into a de-icing tank. The way they reacted to it did.
2: See, I'm also not sure, though, if even if they made it to the runway, they were in a right wing down position. Correct. Would they have struck wing first?
1: If they had managed speed and propeller pitch correctly, no. Are you sure? That is part of your training as a multi-engine pilot. You were supposed to learn how to fly an airplane in straight and level flight with a single side operating.
2: Okay, well...
1: That is, we will basic. agree to
2: disagree. It that is, is what it is. That is
1: basic multi engine flying. <laughs>
2: Miranda, whose side are you on?
0: <laughs> I'm. I'm on your side. Thank you. But it is basic multi engine flying? <laughs> I also flying. understand what yes. Nick's saying too. No. I it's a, it's a, a, the whole thing of like the storm. Yes. Storm of things Perfect that happened. Storm. Yes. Like yeah. Yes. It, if both things happened, so this happened.
1: I agree. I agree with that.
0: If yes. one of them didn't happen, then the accident probably wouldn't have happened.
1: Right. I agree that one or the other not happening.
0: Would have it would not have prevented caused prevented this to accident? Be,
2: yeah, catastrophic. Okay. Well, that's 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 the that's cause. that. <laughs> so here's recommendation.
1: The the actual recommendation.
2: It's a separate document.
1: It is a separate document. So they have a series of recommendations in actuality, but they're all about the same thing. Let's talk about this in brief. The gist of what they do with the recommendations is discuss. How the safety management system didn't exist for the Collins Foundation, and how the FAA had no oversight over this, and how for these living history, flight experience certified organizations are pretty much operating on the very the edge honor system: Well, yeah, kind of, and are pretty much operating at the very
2: edge of maintenance and safety. Kind of all the time. Oh, I got it. I got the recommendation. Okay. To the Federal Aviation Administration, develop national safety standards or equivalent regulations for revenue passenger carrying operations that are currently conducted under Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 91, including but not limited to sightseeing flights conducted in a hot air balloon, intentional parachute jump flights, and living history flight experience and other vintage aircraft flights. These standards, or equivalent regulations, should include, at a minimum for each operation type, requirements for initial and recurrent training and maintenance and management policies and procedures. So there you go. So basically just regulate this.
1: Yes, and there needs to be much stringent standards on...
0: Things like maintenance.
1: Yes, stringent, or is it much tighter standards?
0: Yes, more strict. Yes. Stricter standards. Yes,
1: much stricter standards on how the maintenance is conducted on these kinds of aircraft, how... The oversight on this kind of operation is performed and how they are allowed to go around certain regulations, but should also be well-maintained, which when you're talking about really old airplanes like this, we've talked about this before, but they're going to require far more maintenance. Your car has a lot of miles on it. It needs a lot more maintenance than a brand new car. Duh. Yeah. You kind of know that, so you can assume that about an old airplane, too. And I understand that it is hard to operate these organizations because most of the time they operate with very, very tight budgets. And
0: it should, but here's the deal, right? You know, parts for this aircraft are going to be expensive because it's so old, and they stop making some of these parts.
1: Of course, and so- there are organizations sometimes they have to order specialized parts to get certified from a place that makes just a small batch just for them.
0: Yes. So the the problem with that is, yeah, you have a strict budget, but you can't be like super stingy on your maintenance budget. You just can't. It makes the airplane unsafe. And if you're going to fly it with passengers inside it especially, it needs to be as safe as it possibly can be.
1: Correct. So that's kind of why they want these standards, too, is because it didn't just affect a pilot and a co-pilot. It affected the passengers, which, speaking of, There's currently a lawsuit Uh against the Collings Foundation, as well as oversight of such thing.
2: As of today, the Wikipedia site for this crash does not mention a resolution to that lawsuit.
1: But the families of some of the deceased, as well as some of the injured, are suing. Which they
2: should. For wrongful death. Yes. Because the whole
0: real reason that this happened was... The inability to maintain the aircraft, and then the inability to be able to land it in an emergency situation. Yes.
1: So, it is a tough situation. It is unfortunate what happened, of course. And it's unfortunate that we lost another piece of history. And it just shouldn't have happened. No. I mean, that's just kind of the gist of this. There's there There were things in place to keep this from happening, and now, of course, there's more. But it is a tough thing. And this is a tough discussion that's been floating around the aviation community now, even... Before this accident, but since this accident, and it's been very much talked about, and I've seen a lot of these discussions online.
2: One of the families in the lawsuit is the co-pilot's family.
1: Interesting. I mean, to be fair, he was pretty new to the airplane.
2: Yeah. And he wasn't really the one that made the decision.
1: No. He didn't have any part in the decision, actually. It was
0: the pilot in command Mm -hmm. that made all the decisions. He had no... It sounds like, because we don't have a CVR... But it sounds like he is not the one who made the decision to-
2: Do anything? Do
0: anything. He was just there, I guess, to talk to ATC would be my guess, but he didn't do anything that caused the plane to be in a dangerous situation. Right. So I would understand why his family is like, yo, what the heck? Yeah. Bruh.
1: (laughs) You know? Yeah. So-
2: The most recent news I can find on it was June of this year. So I'm assuming it's still an ongoing lawsuit
1: it most likely is. Yes.
2: Oh, just kidding. That's a new lawsuit. Three other lawsuits are still pending in court. That's nice. So now there's four lawsuits.
1: So it it's a tough thing when these these kinds of accidents happen, and they are rare, thankfully. But you don't want them to happen again.
0: No, no so one does. I
1: agree with the recommendation and I know that that makes it harder for these organizations to operate. But in some regard that's kind of necessary. It shouldn't necessarily be easy for these operators to no. do what they do. And it needs to be a very strict and high standard operation in order to be providing this history people. Yeah. I mean I because know Because that-
0: people died.
1: Yes. That should is. be
0: part of your ticket price, right? I mean, They're probably you, really high.
1: If you want easy history, go to a museum and see these things that are non-flying. Right. If you want to have this kind of experience, it's going to be expensive and difficult. And unfortunately, that's just the truth.
0: Because they have to be able to maintain these
2: planes somehow. Tangential question. Mm-hmm. For all of those aircraft that are in museums but are kept flight-ready in mm-hmm. case of war... Mm-hmm. Is that regulated actively by the FAA? It
1: should fall into the same thing. Okay. Yep. They are living history flights, so they should be, if they are airworthy and they're beyond a certain age, which there are a certain class of aircraft, aircraft that these fall into, then yes, they should be regulated the exact same way.
2: Gotcha. Because I know we've gone to many an aviation museum and there's no way we've even gotten to the majority of them.
1: Now that is to say that they are public use and that they are owned by an organization,
0: primarily. Mm -hmm. Not the military. That they're being
1: paid for hire to do, because that falls into the same thing. If the aircraft is owned by a private owner and isn't being operated for hire, then they have to follow pretty much the standard regulations for whatever class of airplane they're operating.
0: Gotcha. Okay, well. That was the 2019 B-17 crash. At Bradley.
1: Of 909.
0: So... Thank you all for listening. That was an interesting one this week. Very different. Very different. So, we appreciate you guys. Again, if you want to check out Patreon, you can go to Patreon, look us up. We pop right up. Or you can go to the Patreon tab on our website. You can also buy merch. If you would like to support us, or I found out this this week, there is a new thing on Spotify that you can rank us on Spotify. Ooh. So, and most of our listeners, if you're listening now, come from Spotify. So if you would give us a five-star rank, that would be great. It helps us get higher up and more people to see us. Same thing on Apple Podcasts and stuff too. Also, if you just subscribe to the show, the same thing happens. And I know we say this every week, but you know, it's just good to reiterate it
1: Yep, it does help us. It really does. It really
0: does. (sighs) You can now get ducks for free. Yes, you can. Again, there's a thing on the website for that. And then New Year Stories, please tell us your first adventure stories. And we hope you all had a happy holidays. This is before the holidays for us, but we hope you all had a great holiday and and a great New Year, and we will catch you next time. Keep your airspeed up.